welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we're back with our favorite episode of all, science. Science, indeed. Every once in a while, it's very important for us to remind ourselves in the context of National Treasure that we are first and foremost trained scientists, everyone. Fun fact for folks who are joining us maybe for the first time this season. Yes, we both have our PhDs in a scientific field. Yeah, so fooled you. <laughs> Bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> we barely wow. talk about science. I mean, because we don't have a ton of opportunity to. As you all might remember, we have done a deep dive into the science and tech used in the first National Treasure movie. We've done a deep dive into the science and tech in the second National Treasure movie. And finally, we are here with you today doing a deep dive into the science and tech in National Treasure Edge of History. We once again have some new content to play with here. We do. But first, what do we have to do? Oh, we must do... Our screams from Parkington Lane. Do you have a scream to share with me? Honestly, I don't even know why I ask you. You have a scream to share because I require you to have one. Uh, what is it, Emily? <laughs> yes, you do require me to have one. Um, so my scream is that my cousin started his first year uh, of college, and he is going to George Washington University, which is right in DC and he's playing on the baseball team there and it's a D1 baseball team so like they do the cool like photographs and like stuff like that so I was like looking on the social media today um for the baseball team and found that what they did with their new recruits so like the the freshmen basically is they took them to the World War II memorial and they had them stand in front of the pillar that had the state that they, you know, like went to high school in. Um, so he has one of those pictures. And then there is also a picture of the entire baseball team nicely centered in front of the Washington Monument. Mm. Um, and I was just like, this just feels very national treasure really national treasure tour esque <laughs> um but it yeah it was Amazing. really cool to kind of stalk that and be like i know all about those things totally she can show him where kilroy is next time at uh, the world war ii memorial okay yeah if you want to know what that refers to come on our tour um how about you my scream is kind of about you oh great so at the time of this recording uh, Emily recently had her bridal shower for her wedding, and um, I guess it's kind of a two-part scream here. The first part is that as I was driving to the bridal shower, it, which was literally in like place I had never heard of, Pennsylvania, so I was very unfamiliar with the route. I'm like driving along, driving along, get to an intersection, like do a, like a quick glance at the street sign for some reason, because like I don't really care, which is why it's a quick glance, and it was like. Wait, is this, does this street, is it called Freemason's Way? Um, it was not. It was actually Freedom Way, which is, like, equivalently National Treasure-esque. So, like, True. That, 
that is so basically I'm seeing things now, which is cool. And um, the second part of my scream is really um, an acknowledgement to you, Emily. While we were at the bridal shower, uh, you were actually the one to suggest that you and I take a picture with a lemon wedge. And I was just like really, really proud of you and honored to be with you for that moment. Thank you. I mean, yeah, we don't, I feel like we don't really come across lemons that frequently in, in our daily lives, personally. So when, when life gives you lemons, take a picture with them, I guess. <laughs> That is how the saying goes. Uh, we also have one more scream to share with you guys this week. It is from our patron, Lisa, who you've heard from before on the pod. Uh, Lisa is also a podcaster. You should check out her show, It Takes Two. And she shared with us, quote, we were recording an episode of our podcast today and her colleague Nick was on a tangent about European royalty and asked Lisa, who the British monarch was at the time of the American Civil War, and she was like, oh, Queen Victoria, she supported the Confederacy. It's in National Treasure, too. End quote. Amazing, Lisa. Way to put that knowledge to use. Truly. I mean, those people who say that National Treasure, too, is not historical, um, well, they should just listen to our podcast to find out they're wrong. I mean, no one no, no one can say for certain that Queen Victoria supported the Confederacy, but she was indeed uh, the queen at the time of that historical event. So uh, good for you, Lisa. We are very proud of you and your historical prowess. Yes, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, if you want to be like Lisa and have your scream shared on a future episode of National Treasure Hunt, you should join our Patreon. You should. Um, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ntheuntpodcast, uh, where you can support us and we'll give you more content and the chance to share your screams. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at ntheuntpodcast. We are available at ntheuntpodcast.com. Uh, it has basically all of the information about us aside from our bathroom schedules. Please go ahead and order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at TuckerDSPress.com as well. And if you're in the supporting National Treasure Hunt spirit, you should absolutely also go check out our candle that we created in collaboration with Clio. Uh, for those of you who are listening in for the first time, we've been sharing with you that we had the amazing experience to create a candle with Clio uh, that is inspired by the olfactive history of Independence Hall. It is called In Congress, July 4th, 1776, and is available at exploreclio.com. That's explore, K-L-E-I-O.com. Um, M, I don't know about you. Uh, at the time of this recording, I received my first candle recently, and it was just the coolest experience. Oh, it was so cool. It looked so cool in person uh amazing i haven't lit it yet um i i don't want i like don't want to because i I don't want it to go away (laughs) (laughs) i feel the same way it's just like my prize uh y'all are gonna love it we hope you check it out um i think it's time to dive in it's enough business yeah we gotta get to the science man there's so much science to talk about you guys uh how this episode is gonna go we are going to deep dive into seven 
scientific topics where we're going to spend a little more time and effort going into the scientific details and then ultimately answering the question, was it presented legitimately in National Treasure Edge of History? At the end of the episode, we're going to do one of our speed rounds. We're going to go into a little less detail. It'll probably be funny, let's be honest. Um, and much to everyone's delight, National Treasure Lab is back, you guys. Ooh, ooh. So to newcomers of this style of our episode, um, Emily and I picked out a couple of the topics we're going to go into today uh, to test at home. We videoed them and we will be sharing them on our social media for you to watch in the weeks following this episode release. So, so much content here. Let's get to it. Let's go, Aubrey. I think you have the first scientific thing. I do. I have the pleasure of kicking us off with the concept of magnetized lodestone. Um, we will remind you of the edge of history context in which each topic was presented before we dive into the science. So um, for those who don't remember, around episode two of edge of history is where we are first really introduced to the concept of the puzzle boxes uh, that are central, the three boxes that are central to the treasure hunt in the show. Um, in episode six is when we find out what they're made of and some of their physical properties. So we are shown that um, basically Billy out of nowhere says, oh, the boxes are made of magnetized lodestone. Um, little fun aside really quick. I, Aubrey, never realized until right now that they're like also supposed to be made of jade, obsidian, and lapis. Um, so I don't know, maybe they're just like coated in jade obsidian and lapis although they're stones so i don't they can't really paint them on i don't know plot hole whatever um <laughs> i literally just realized that this week when i was prepping this um ultimately billy shows that the boxes in this case the jade and obsidian boxes because they are also lodestone um magnetically attract one another and so this is the property that she proposes she and jess can use to find the third box when they think it is in the well at the Alamo. Okay, Aubrey, thank you for that lovely context. Now, is what is the science, man? <laughs> All right, so um, this is really a material science question, which is cool because that is part of what my PhD is in. <laughs> it felt like a little time to flex here. Um, the, this all boils down to the mineral magnetite, which you might actually have jewelry made out of. I know I have jewelry made of magnetite. It's basically an iron oxide material. So for those who are like counting atoms here, we're talking iron and oxygen in different ratios here. Um, the material can be magnetized, which is why like in jewelry, like my magnetite jewelry that I own uh, is magnetic. So it's like a long chain and you can wear it as a choker or a bracelet or whatever because it sticks together. It's whatever length you need it to be, etc. Um, magnetite, however, can also be naturally magnetic. This is fairly uncommon, but when this happens, the magnetite is called lodestone. It's kind of a square and rectangle situation here. Like all lodestone is magnetite, but not all magnetite is lodestone. Okay. Um, something I found interesting researching this is 
sort of the slight mystery behind how lodestone is made in nature, because again, it is fairly uncommon for magnetite to be naturally magnetic. Um, it turns out that Earth's magnetic field is too weak to like take magnetite on the surface and just straight up magnetize it like on on its own just to happen randomly. So the most accepted explanation of how lodestone forms is that um, when lightning bolts, like lightning comes down from the sky, there is uh, a magnetic field surrounding the lightning. And basically that magnetic field is really strong and creates, like magnetizes the magnetite creating the lodestone. Um, it's giving me Thor's hammer vibes. It, in a weird way, I think that's kind of accurate. And one of the pieces of evidence that is used to support this theory is the fact that lodestones are typically found near the Earth's surface and not really in the crust, um, which again, lightning is hitting the surface. Um, so I found that pretty interesting personally. So let's talk about some of the history of lodestone because I don't know. I found that when I was doing research for this episode, especially for this one, these boxes are supposed to be ancient, right? And so this this science research for me quickly became science and history research a little bit. Um, I had some of them that were like that too. Yeah, because I was like, okay, the science, yeah, lodestone is real, but like these boxes were made by indigenous Americans. Is that possible? It turns out that lodestone, because it is magnetic, attracts iron. This is actually how the property of magnetism was first discovered. Um, magnetism has been known for a very long time. Its first kind of well-accepted use it was by the ancient Greeks, approximately 600 BC. Um, in terms of where magnetite later appears in history... It would later be cited in a medical text from ancient India as a means of removing arrows from human bodies, right? Because magnetic. Um, it was also described in ancient Chinese texts. Um, lodestones were used to fabricate the first magnetic compasses. But most interestingly for our conversation and edge of history here, I did find an article in Smithsonian Magazine indicating that a Mesoamerican civilization that would have lived in present-day Guatemala called the, the Monte Alto people that existed from around 500 to 100 BC, these people of this civilization may have used lodestones to identify boulders that they would use to create their sculptures. So obviously this is an archaeology problem now. Um, basically, the boulders that they used to create their sculptures, the, the existing ones, like the ones that remain, have been tested, and archaeologists have confirmed that the sculptures seem to be specifically designed such that protruding features of the sculptures corresponded with the most magnetic portions of the boulders, such that, like, this happens consistently, it is not a coincidence. So they needed to know where those magnetic features of the boulders were. And so one of the theories here is that lodestones were used to find those features in the boulders. Ah, very cool. Yeah, I also found that Mesoamericans in history also used magnetite and hematite to make mirrors. Um, so lodestones very well could have been known to them. All right, seems seems 
legit so far. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, all the references I found specifically said that lodestone could attract, quote, small pieces of iron with, like, if you Google this, paper clips and nails, like, hammer nails, um, are the images that you're going to find. Like, there's a going to be a, a rock with a bunch of paper clips stuck to it, and, like, that's the illustration here. Um, therefore, it does seem, like, very unlikely to me that the boxes would attract each other in the aggressive way that Billy demonstrates, and certainly would not have quote unquote led them to a third box if the box was like buried in a wall and they were just like kind of near it so you're probably <laughs> wondering would i characterize this as legit right yeah um i'm going to my verdict is i'm gonna say kind of <laughs> it's a very emily answer it it is okay the basic science of lodestones is there and even historically consistent i really tried to go out of my way there um, but again, their strength and magnetic properties, I would say, were greatly exaggerated in Edge of History. Okay, okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so, um, Emily, you're going to take us to our second topic of the day. I am. So, my first topic, or our second topic, was, uh, dementia. And basically, um, sh should I give the movie context that you wrote? Or would you <laughs> like to give the movie context that you wrote? As entertaining as I'm sure it would be for you to try to remember what you're reading as you're reading it, um, I I'm happy to do the honors here. Basically, throughout the season, starting in episode one, we are told that Agent Sadusky has dementia. Um, our friend Miles, the live-in nurse, played by Dustin Ingram, says that the dementia is the reason why Sadusky thinks his house is bugged, that Sadusky thinks Miles himself is an FBI agent, etc. Um, now, in retrospect, something I also really only realized prepping this episode, we only get this information about the dementia from Miles and then later Hendrix, the latter of whom could have totally been perpetrating it as a rumor so people wouldn't listen to Sadusky if he started revealing things about Krasas Nostrum. So I think the interesting question here to discuss, Emily, is what is dementia and how does it like work? Most specifically, so we can answer the question, were Sadusky's behaviors consistent with it? Yeah. So, you know, in the same way that you were able to kind of use your own expertise to uh, delve into the science behind your first topic, I um, have my PhD in neuroscience, so I was able to use some of my own expertise for this topic. Um, so I really want to use this section to kind of go into the neuroscience of the different types of dementia, because dementia is kind of like an umbrella term for a bunch of different diseases. Um, however, I don't think that's going to be particularly helpful for our conversation as a whole. So I'm going to like briefly mention the neuroscience or like the brain changes that actually occur to cause these things. But I'm going to focus more on like the symptoms of the different type of dementia. That sounds great. Let's uh, let's dive in. Okay, so um, I'm going to run through the different types of dementia, and then as I'm doing that, I'm going to discuss, like, why they may or may not be relevant to Sadusky, and then we're going to end, right, with whether or not it's legit. So the first one is Alzheimer's disease. Um, this is the most common type of dementia, and honestly, the causes are, 
like somewhat contested, but it generally seems there's like an abnormal buildup of these specific proteins um, called amyloid and tau. That's all you really need to know. In um, the brain? Is it built up in the brain? Yeah, sorry. It's built up in the brain. Um, uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before, um, but I have um, personal experience with family members and Alzheimer's disease. So I'm very familiar with the symptom profile um, honestly, the symptom profile is mostly memory related. Um, so you basically just like start to like lose your memories. Um, and honestly, you would likely see a very severe loss of functioning before you got to the point where any of the behaviors that Sadusky was experiencing an edge of history would start to come into play so to get to the point with alzheimer's where you're being like really really confused and like excessively worried and violent like you have to have a significant like a really hard drop in not only memory but just like general functioning mm. in life before you kind of get to that point um that being said every case is different but like this one i'm gonna say no not okay. sadusky did not have alzheimer's or could not have had alzheimer's that's um, i think that's really helpful to know i'm like really excited about this one the more you start talking because we've postulated on the podcast like you know did he actually have dementia or was this like a very crafty trick on the part of the bad guys? And no one's really given us a square answer to that in terms of the the cast and crew. So I feel like we're going to be able to answer the question here. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to answer that question, but mm -hmm. we'll be able to get somewhere. So um, the next type of dementia is frontotemporal dementia. This is really rare and it tends to occur in people that are younger than 60 years old uh, but it is associated with once again abnormal amounts of proteins in the brains let's cross this one out right away because Sadowski as we know from Edge of History was in his 80s during the show so mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. not him um, next type of dementia is vascular dementia this is actually slightly different this is caused by damaged blood vessels in your brain that prevent blood and oxygen from getting to the brain in the way that it needs to. Um, and some of the common symptoms of this tend to be hallucinations or delusions. Though I will say that most other symptoms are related to memory. So mm. I pulled out the hallucinations and delusions because like, I was like, Oh, that could be a thing. But then like, there were also a ton of memory symptoms and we don't really see like any memory related things with Sadowski even in Miles's right or Hendrick's version of the events that they tell they're not talking about his memory that's very true and you know we even see Sadowski very cognizant of like who Liam is and you know wanting to be in touch with his grandson and knowing that his son Jack died and all of that kind of stuff Right. So the next and last type of dementia we're going to talk about is called Lewy body dementia. This is also caused by a buildup of proteins in the brain. Um, so as I went through this, I was kind of like, hmm, maybe. 
symptoms occur at age 50 and up and happen to be more frequent in men than in women. So already we're off to a good start. There are uh, a major symptom is visual hallucinations. This actually occurs in up to 80% of people. So I will say we were never told that Sadusky had visual hallucinations, but perhaps this could explain the rationale behind him possibly quote unquote seeing though it was not confirmed that he ever saw them like bugs planted in his house right oh you mean like recording them not like insects yeah. <laughs> no not insects <laughs> um another set of symptoms is disorganized ideas that can be unclear or illogical um it would honestly be super easy to blame Sadowski's seemingly disordered nature and his quote unquote confusion about thinking Miles was in the FBI on these symptoms. Uh so possibility. I actually am thinking here about when he goes like when Jess is in his presence and he goes off on that like tangent that we've criticized as like the writers just like spitting out a bunch of random historical facts to like you know, when he's like, tomatoes come from Mexico, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I think that can be seen as both ideas that are illogical slash unclear, but also we have to remember that his whole train of thought there was very linear. So like mm -hmm. he would say like Mexico, tomatoes, tomatoes, pizza, Pete, like, you know, like he did kind of go down a logical chain, even though it seemed a little off, off. Yeah. Right. And then the final set of, well, not the final set of symptoms, but uh, another set of symptoms that I pulled out were things like delusions, paranoia, and distrust of others. Um, so for this, I would like to point out, like, see the point above, right? Or see the last point, right? The confusion. Um, I do feel like this one is important to just touch on a little more because Sadusky, it's made very clear, trusts Liam. Mm -hmm. And he trusts Jess, like, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, which would kind of go against the idea that he might have this Louis body dementia. But he also had a distrust of Miles and that kind of stuff. So, and was... You know, you could classify him as being paranoid that there were bugs planted in his house and stuff like that. All of this is to say that, like, not all of these symptoms are generalizable to all people. But Louis body dementia, definitely, if Sadowski was going to have dementia, I feel like it would have been this Louis body dementia. Now, Aubrey, you might be asking, is this legit? I am. Right. Okay, so... You had postulated earlier that we would finally be able to answer the question of whether Sadusky had dementia or this was a Crossus Nostrum kind of cover-up. The answer is I don't really know. <laughs> is it legit? Surprisingly, yes. So like, like he could have had dementia. He definitely could have had dementia. Like it fits. Specifically, I think it would have been this Louis body dementia, given the symptoms that he is supposedly exhibiting. Um, but I don't think we can say, like, whether he actually had it or not, because we're not doing any, like, other, we're not doing any tests on him. Mm -hmm. um, and we're dealing with unreliable narrators, both in terms of him and Hendrix and uh, Miles. 
Um, I do have to say, though, like, I remember we were just both kind of like, he does not have dementia. It is very clear it is not to have dementia because we were both thinking like, well, memory, memory yeah. loss is the biggest thing. And like, he seems so together with his memories. So I am honestly like really shocked at how well this held up and thought it was really fun to look into. I'm really, this is really fascinating. It is interesting that it holds up. The one other thing that I'm going to bring up randomly, because it just popped into my head. Do you remember when we were doing our recap episodes and um, pointed out how weird it would be that a man with dementia would leave all of these clues for himself in his clue room to get out if he got locked in? I feel like I remember you saying that was weird and me saying that people with dementia tend to leave themselves a lot of notes yeah but it weren't like straight up notes it wasn't like look already had to solve them he had to solve things that were very stretchy yeah but okay so okay still inconclusive got it all right i think it's my turn again yep okay so this one was kind of fun um i'm looking into moths that eat fabric have you ever had to deal with this before, Emily? Like being afraid that your clothes were going to get eaten by moths? No, but I remember my grandma's closet smelled like mothballs. Hmm, cute. Um, so the context we're working with here is back in episode three, I believe, of Edge of History, um, we have our Graceland heist. Uh, recall that the, the purpose here is our team needs to get into Elvis's secret room at Graceland. And the plan that they come up with is that Orin is going to go into Graceland, into like the hall where all of Elvis's um, jumpsuits, his costumes are kept. And he is going to release harmless moths when the curators open the costume display cases. Um, this is going to trigger the people at Graceland to freak out and call exterminators. Ethan and Liam are going to pose as those exterminators and be like inevitably led all over the whole property, including to the secret room to make sure that, you know, all these priceless artifacts aren't at risk of being eaten by moths. So... For me, the question here became, number one, like, do moths eat fabric? If so, do all moths eat fabrics? So, like, is there this differentiation between harmless moths and fabric-eating moths? And would it be possible for moths to eat specifically Elvis's jumpsuits? All right, so I'm once again going to okay. go science meets history here. Okay, I'm excited. All right, so according to the entomology department at the University of Kentucky, <laughs> the larvae of what are called colloquially clothes moths feed exclusively on animal fibers because animal fibers contain keratin. Because keratin is the protein, really, that, that the moths or really their larvae are after here. So uh, what does animal fibers mean in the context of clothes? This means wool. This means fur, silk, feathers, felt, and leather. Um, I feel like some of them were in Elvis's costumes. Well, we're going to get into that. Um, in So this is like what they would eat in clothing context. In the wild, these moths are eating... Um, 
like animals nesting materials and carcasses, right? That's how they're getting the the keratin that they need. Um, and it turns out that that clothing, if made of these materials, is an appropriate supplement for them. Now, in North America and Europe, at least, the moths in question here, the clothes moths, there are two kinds. They are, these are the scientific names, uh, Tineola baseliella and Tinea pelionella. Great job. Thank you. The, the common names here are the webbing clothes moth and the case-bearing clothes moth, respectively. They look a little different, both their moths and the larvae that they come from. Um, but in general, they're about half an inch long, and you're not really going to see them typically because they prefer dark, undisturbed locations, so probably like your grandma's closet, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, the adults, the moths themselves, they don't eat or like harm clothing. Um, but the moths are the ones that lay eggs on clothing. What happens when the eggs hatch? The larvae come out. The larvae are now like on the clothes and they're going to eat the clothes. Oh. Yeah. Um, now, what I found interesting here, you might have noticed I, I very explicitly specified animal-based fibers, right? Yes. Plant-based fibers like cotton. And synthetic fibers like polyester or rayon are not targeted by clothes moss unless those materials are blended with like a lot of wool or are like super dirty with a lot of food or oils from human skin. Hmm. Okay. And this is where the science meets history comes in because I started wondering what Elvis's costumes were made of because, you know, I don't know. He was moving around. I'm not an Elvis expert by any stretch of the imagination, but from what I understand, his whole thing was that he was moving around a lot on stage. And I find it really hard to believe that as he's like jumping and doing kicks in the air and stuff, that we're talking a substantial amount of leather or wool or other stiff animal-based fabrics, right? Um, it turns out that there's a lot of info online about what his costumes were made of and it changed a bit over time but it does seem that like his earliest costumes were a wool slash lycra blend um i've heard that word before yeah so we're basically talking a combination of wool and spandex um so animal and synthetic Okay, now just depending on the exact ratio of wool to lycra, you know, they may or may not have been susceptible to clothing moths. But um, the reason that this material changed over time is this, this blend was really hot. So my supposition was correct. Well, spandex is good for movement. Exactly. So that's what happens here. I, and here I'm able to reference um, a man by the name of Bill Billu. And apologies if I pronounced that incorrectly, um, but Bill was tapped to create Elvis's jumpsuits around the time of 1968 in time for Elvis's big comeback special. Um, and it seems that at this time, when Bill was designing the costumes, per his own words in articles that I read, he switched to mostly the, the material known as gabardine. Now, have you heard of that one, Em? Nope. Now... I'm happy to introduce you to it. Um, gabardine is super annoying for for me personally. Why? 
because it made it really hard to research this topic for the episode because it can be made of many things, including both wool and cotton. Oh. Yeah. And then I found an article in Commercial Appeal about a new 2022 Graceland exhibit of jumpsuits. And that article, which again is fairly recent, um, said that the gabardine in question for the jumpsuits in this exhibit was a wool mixed gabardine blend. But then there's an outsider article that quotes Bill Billu as saying that he wanted to use the stretch gabardine material that ice skaters costumes are made of so that Elvis could incorporate his quote unquote karate in the words of Bill. And so then I was like, what is this stretch gabardine? It seems to be made from lycra. Wow, that was a that was a rabbit hole. It was, but it did help me answer the question of whether or not this is legit. You want to know my assessment? I am waiting with bated breath. <gasps> wow, I can hear the bated breath. Um, surprisingly, I'm going to answer the question of is it legit with yes. Ooh. I think that Jess and her friend's plan likely would have worked. Um, though I would argue that the curators at Graceland would know exactly what the costumes are made of and therefore exactly what would or would not be a threat to those costumes. So I guess for this plan to actually have worked, we'd probably have to believe the jumpsuits were made of wool lycra. Either that or the curators were just dumb and not good at their jobs. Which is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that was super cool. I was, you lost me a little bit in the middle there, and then it picked right back up. I'm so offended. (laughs) Don't be offended. That was awesome. Okay, well, um, I'm actually really excited about your next one. I've, a part of me wishes I researched this one because I'm genuinely curious about it. This is the backwards audio recordings, like on a, on a record. Mm -hmm. Um, As a reminder for everyone listening, In episode four, after the Graceland experience, um, recall that once Jess got herself into the secret room, she recorded, like, on her phone or whatever, the audio from the gold La Paloma record that she found in the room. And it's in the next episode, episode four, that she and Liam figure out if you reverse the audio so if you play it backwards it has elvis saying a secret message the twin tongue serpent's tail is revealed in fair weather by the bend in the newfound land um so this is like a bona fide like hidden clue one of i would say few in edge of history so that's why i want to know if it's legit tell me about it em okay so um i'm gonna just start (laughs) By saying that I'm not sure why, but this whole idea of, like, hidden messages in audio recordings really freaks me out. (laughs) And I I wish I understood. I do not. But I took one for the team and looked into it anyway. Um, So my main kind of, like, question here was... 
or I had a couple questions here. <laughs> I have right? a lot of questions. So. so like first question was like, how do you get the backwards recording onto a record? Like how right. would one do that? Uh-huh. Okay. My second question was, did people do this? Mm-hmm. History. <laughs> and then this led me to like how would you go about listening to this back in the day hmm. so if you remember you said just pulled out like her phone or whatever to do to you know record the record but you know she didn't like people didn't have phones back in the day yeah and so. they didn't have a computer that they could then load it into and like flip the file yeah so many questions um so the technique itself is a thing of having bat like having a secret message hidden backwards in an audio recording. The technique is called backmasking and it's actually been used for like literally decades. It's a message recorded backwards onto a track um that is supposed to be played the correct way. Um, so, like, the idea is that if pe- people don't know to look for it, they're not going to probably, like, super notice it. Okay. So, the first record, uh, and when I say record, I mean, like, actual, like, vinyl record uh, with back masking was Car Trouble by The Eligibles in 1959. I've never heard of this song, this band, anything like that, but cool that's when it started now the beatles are actually pretty famous for doing this in a handful of their songs which i wouldn't know because i don't like the beatles and apparently it led to a lot of like conspiracy theories about like satanic messages hidden in their songs and stuff like that um kind of weird wait and so this is when i started to get like a little more freaked out um <laughs> and so in a handful of their songs uh the beatles did this including tomorrow never knows i'm only sleeping and rain yes aubrey what did the backwards messages say um the backwards messages just said stupid things um the one so the one i listened to an excerpt of which creeped me out and then looked at what it actually said was from rain okay and all it is is it's basically the first like couple lines of the first verse are repeated at the end of the song but like the words are said backwards the reverse order of the words, basically. The reverse order of the words, yeah. So if it said, like, rain was falling, right, it would be falling was rain at the end of, you know. So it was, like, lit- it must have been for fun, because that, like, does nothing. Yeah, that was for fun. Most of this, honestly, is for fun. The main thing to note here is that when these records or songs or whatever they are are played forward, like, the song is played as normal... These back mask messages literally are just nonsense. Like it doesn't sound like words. It but just there sounds is... like syllables together. 
does it, is it supposed to sound like, would you know it's there or would it just sound like the background music? Um, you, when I, when, so I will say I only listened to the clip from Rain, um, like that one clip. I didn't listen to the whole song, but from what I heard, like it was clear they were singing. Interesting. Um, so like it, it wasn't the, it, there were, you could tell that somebody was making the noises with their like vocal cords. Hmm. Um, That being said, if there's a lot of background stuff going on or whatnot, you might not notice. I think a good example um, of this, and I this isn't actually an example of backmasking, but I remember, and this might be where my fear comes from, um, when I was younger, you know that song that it's like, I'm blue, if I were green, I would die? Da -ba -dee, da -ba -da -da. Right. Uh-huh. So there was, like, a whole, like, rumor that, like, went around, I feel like when we were kids, at least, like, in my schools, that, like, if you played that song backwards, there was, like, a message in it. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. I wish and I knew that. so, but, like, if you think about it, right, if you're not, if you don't hear the lyrics correctly, which is basically, like, I'm blue, if I were green, I would die. It sounds like I'm blue, right? So, like, because that's just nonsense. But like, people didn't really think anything of it. They were just like, oh, it's just kind of like they're like scatting, basically, like in the song. So, you people might not notice it. So, honestly, I will say that there's not a lot of great, like, quote unquote, like science here. This is mostly like a history thing. With like, I I tried to throw in a little bit of science where I could. Um. So my next question was like, okay, so if people had records, obviously for the eligibles to include that message about like stop playing these records backwards, um, people had to be finding a way to play their records backwards. Um, so I was like, how is that possible? Apparently, literally, <laughs> you just put the record on the turntable as normal and put the needle on and then rather than like turning it on and having it like rotate the correct way, you just move your finger, index finger, counterclockwise on the record to, to make it go in reverse, and it'll yeah. sound in reverse. Um, that being said, this is not good for any part of the turntable setup. So even though I do have a record player, I did not personally try this because I was not going to do that. Darn. Um. Nowadays, and this was kind of alluded to by you, Aubrey, also by what we saw in the episode, recording um, a vinyl record playing forward and then literally using like the reverse effect in Audacity is typically how people would find these back masked messages if they were not already online. So like a lot of the ones I was reading about, they're already online. You can mm. literally listen to the song backwards. But like Jess literally just had to take her recording of the, the vinyl and flip it mm -hmm. and listen to it. So is this legit? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Backmasking's a thing. I will say the logic of the gold record being kept in Graceland, like this specific version, uh, yeah. right, fits with 
everything we just learned about backmasking because if the backmasking was present on all versions of La Paloma, which is an actual record that Elvis had, it just wasn't gold, It people would have probably noticed Elvis singing nonsense syllables because that's not what he did. Mm-hmm. And therefore, like, somebody probably would have figured out the clue, like, way before Jess and co. got to it. So, yeah. I... I love that. Okay. That one's pretty straightforward. It was. Uh, I do have one fun fact. Okay. Um, I found this while researching about this, and I pulled it out and then, like, quickly left the Wikipedia page. Um, it was National Treasure-related, though. Apparently, Styx, which is a band, mm-hmm. um, released an album that was directly, like in response to those claims that I was mentioning earlier of people saying like backmasking was being used to send like satanic messages basically yeah. and um they did this uh on an album called Kilroy was here second Kilroy reference in one episode yes. today so I saw that and was like oh well, I have to talk about that it gets better. So th- long story short, th- basically the album is talking about this like made up music group um, that outlaws rock music. It kind of sounds like Footloose, honestly. But the sticker that is on the cover of the album, and Aubrey will have to look this up, um looked very familiar to me and uh when i read into it a little bit more it uh contains the message quote by order of the majority for musical morality this album contains secret backwards messages and then there is one particular song on the track that does have a latin backwards message uh which i'm not going to try to say um, but it basically says God has favored our undertakings, a new order for the ages. And the album cover contained part of the great seal, which is the thing that's on uh, the, the dollar bill around the pyramid. And it is just all too close to home for me not to mention. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to sit with that one for a bit. Like, that- maybe that's where they got the idea. I don't know. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew we could connect sticks to National Treasure? Who knew? Okay, Aubrey, what is your next topic? My next topic is handwriting analysis. Um so for those who don't remember, around episode five of Edge of History, we have Billy went ahead and bought this supposed journal of Hernan Cortez, which she thinks is the like lost Malinche codex. Like she thinks Malinche wrote in this journal. Uh, She bought it from an antiquities dealer. She takes it to a Mexican academic and he uses handwriting analysis to prove to her that the journal is a fake. It was not written by Cortez. And um, he points out specifically, it's just like one example, the letter, the capital letter G in the entry um 
And he says Cortez put flourishes, like fancy flourishes on many of his letters, but specifically not the capital letter G. And of course, Billy's journals entries have flourishes on the capital G's. And that's how he says this is not a match. Um, so Emily, this is my first National Treasure Lab to oh. share with you. I'm so excited. Yeah. So let me let me actually for this one, let me explain to you a little bit of the quote unquote science behind handwriting analysis and then tell you about my my lab experience. Um, handwriting analysis is part of the field of like broader forensic analysis. Forensic analysis includes everything from like DNA testing to fingerprint analysis and much more. Um, within this field of study, handwriting analysis falls under the category of quote unquote questioned documents. Now, it's actually a really in-depth process of how to appropriately, like with a trained eye, do handwriting analysis. But in short, the process is, you know, a more detailed version of what you might imagine. You're comparing questioned documents, what I would call probably the sample, to exemplars. So these are like example documents or known samples, right, written by the person in question. The more of each that you have, like the more questioned documents you have to compare to a bunch of exemplars, the better off you have, right? Because it's almost like having um, multiple replicates of an experiment in a way. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So handwriting analysis fundamentally relies on examining the individual characteristics of someone's writing. This differs from the quote-unquote style characteristics. Style characteristics, this is something I didn't realize before, Em, those are based on like what copybook an individual was taught to write with when that individual was a child. So like how you were taught to write letters actually depends a bit on geography like different places used different standard copy books to give you your overarching style now what happens here is over time you don't just write the same exact way you were taught for your like when you were five for the right. rest of your life so you have your style characteristics is your base your copy book and over time you develop individual characteristics and that's what really differentiates people's handwriting you are first looking, when you're comparing a question document to an exemplar, you are first and foremost looking for differences that can eliminate the possibility of a match. It's like way easier to prove or say very confidently that two documents or two, the same person did not write both things than it is to say the same person did. That makes so, sense. Yeah, and after you're looking for these differences to eliminate the possibility of a match, then you can go ahead and look for similarities. Um, apparently, there are a variety of ways that this can be done manually versus like using digital tools nowadays. People use microscopes to get to the real detail of it all. Like it's pretty, it's pretty intense. Um, and so you might ask yourselves, like, what individual characteristics can come into play here? Uh, there are things like the form of the letter, so how curves and slants are written, the how big certain letters are compared to one another, the slope of the writing flourishes, like the capital G, right? Um, and, and there can be differences even compared to like what letters are placed next to each other and how they may or may not touch or whatever. There are differences in line form 
So this is like the smoothness or the darkness of lines. This could actually indicate how fast it was written or how much someone was pressing down, which can be characteristic of an individual. There's overall format differences like the spacing between letters or between words or between lines, you know, especially if there's not lines on the page. And then, and then you can even look at things like spelling, punctuation, and grammar, because whereas there's like one correct way to do grammar in many cases, um, someone might make the same mistake consistently, for example. Um, a big question in handwriting analysis, and I think it's important for Edge of History here, is you, you have to ask yourself, can someone, can you tell if someone tried replicating another person's handwriting, like, can this be fooled? Um, basically, this is called simulation, where someone is trying to replicate someone else's handwriting. I guess like a kid forging their parent's signature on, on something is simulation. And the answer of whether or not you can detect it by handwriting analysis is sometimes, right? If you're, okay. if they're really, if the person doing the forgery is really skilled, it's obviously going to be harder. If it's a kid trying to replicate their parent's signature and they're scared or nervous, um, you might be able to tell. Telltale signs of simulation include shaky lines or dark or thick, like beginning and end of words indicating like someone wrote really slow and methodically. Um, and something I found interesting is whether or not handwriting analysis is admissible in court or like if it's good evidence is kind of still up for debate because um, there is some question within the scientific side of this community about like what an appropriate error rate is here, false positives and false negatives. Uh, and there are other challenges besides being able to detect simulation. So, for example, you can't actually compare uppercase and lowercase letters. Um, it can be really hard to find exemplars for a person because especially like nowadays we don't handwrite very much, but you know what I mean? Like we type, we text, we don't yeah, really it hurts write. my hand if I have <laughs> to do go. it too much. And importantly, various factors, like if, if a person is on drugs, if they're exhausted, if they're sick, that can impact their handwriting, making it an imperfect science of being able to compare handwriting from like one time to another but you know there there is apparently a lot of effort going into standardizing within the field and creating digital tools that can hasten our acceptance of whether or not it is a good technique um so uh when i was national treasure hunt labbing this one i first have to give a shout out to mr aaron fiordamondo Mr. Fiordamondo, affectionately known in 12th grade as Fifi, um, was my senior year of high school forensics teacher. And I just have to say, I still remember a lot of this from his class. Ooh. Like more than 10 years ago. We love some consistent memory building. I mean, we love a good teacher, I think is what it boils down to. What I decided to do is because I didn't want to like make this super artificial. I wasn't going to be like, oh, let me write something and then look at other stuff and see if you can tell I wrote both of them. Uh, what I decided to do is a little bit of a modified thing here. I went ahead and like wrote out uh, a page from our book on, on paper. And I decided to look at it critically to figure out if I could notice any individual characteristics of my own writing. And 
the short answer is even as an untrained professional, like there are some very obvious ones that I could pick out myself. Um, so for example, I didn't realize this before, but apparently when I write words, um, and there's an S in the word, if the, if the word starts with an S, I write the S in print, but if the word ends in an S, I write the S in cursive. I do have a note from you from college where you wrote the word bananas and that S is in cursive. Now that I'm thinking of it, I know it's hanging on my fridge. That's the reason oh I my know. gosh. <laughs> yeah. So that was a weird one. And then one that I kind of always knew that I did, but I definitely noticed it in this exercise. Um, when there's an N and a G next to each other in a word, especially like an ING word, I kind of, I guess, cause I write really quickly. I kind of combine the N and the G such that the N almost disappears. Like it almost just looks like IG. In the video that I'm going to share on socials for this National Treasure Lab, I actually encourage all of our listeners to try this out themselves. It's like pretty illuminating. It's pretty fun. Um, and to move things along for the sake of time, is it legit, M? My answer is yes, but. Okay. All right. Hear me out. The professor in Mexico City specifically says, and I wrote this down as a quote, he says, quote, Cortez famously wrote five letters to the Emperor Charles V, ruler of Spain, end quote. And he references one of those letters to show Billy. Now, I feel like the words famously wrote are kind of important to making this claim legit as it's meant to confirm that the exemplars in question the controls if you will are legit and can be trusted this is how we know what Cortez's handwriting looks like now a handwriting analyst should be looking for a number of differences in individual characteristics to rule out an authorship match I'm no expert but in edge of history's case they are implying that the fact that there are one bajillion capital G's with flourishes counts as a number of differences, thereby ruling out Cortez as the author. Now, the least believable part of this to me is that the antiquities dealer and even Billy, who we've established this season on the podcast, is extremely historically educated, that she and this antiquities dealer would not have authenticated this book themselves especially if this G thing was as obvious as they made it look on screen. Like there's so many Gs, they all have these flourishes. And again, remember, these are famous letters that every, you know, according to the professor, anyone in this kind of space would know about. The antiquities dealer should totally know about that. And the, the, the professor says, I would actually be surprised if the person you bought this from knew it was a fake. But based on his own logic, it should be pretty obvious that it's a fake. I, I like how we brought that back around at the end. So that's my yes, but. Okay, very cool. All right, Emily, um, take us through our next one. Our next one is a deep fake, which is super, like, current. It's a very current topic. And in episode seven of Edge of History, um, we see that like once Billy is taken into custody at the Alamo, she tells Casey, Casey, call Miles, tell him to turn this flash drive into the FBI. We find out that the flash drive has a recording of Jess threatening to kill Sadusky on it. 
Now, Ethan is determined to prove that this is a deep fake meant to frame Jess for Sadusky's murder. So I'm really excited to hear about this one because, again, deep fakes are like they were all over the news earlier this year for starters, and they are only continuing to be relevant. So what is the deal with deep fakes? So also kind of creepy. Um, thanks <laughs> for giving me the creepy ones. <laughs> hey, we, we picked these. I know. Defaking a voice nowadays requires the use of artificial intelligence, I'm just going to say AI, to basically clone, quote-unquote, someone's voice. Um, And so I thought the science we could kind of talk about with this is a bit about how AIs do this Mm -hmm. without getting too deep, um, because it's it's a lot. Um, So the AI model, um, so think of something like ChatGPT. Uh, needs training data in the form of voice recordings. Okay, so the idea is that the AI can basically pull individual sounds from these training recordings and quote-unquote learn how to imitate those sounds. So this is kind of where it starts to get a little tricky. This gets us into the potentially deep conversation about AI and how this stuff works, which is not my area of expertise. But that being said, in general, AI tries to replicate, like all AIs, voice, ChatGTP, anything, tries to replicate what happens in the brain by using artificial uh, neural networks. So basically these in the brain are networks of neurons that are connected with one another, so networks of brain cells. Um, And so basically in an AI model, this is like interconnected, basically like nodes of data. Um, And basically you use a series of algorithms uh, that work to create these deep fakes or help the AI learn, quote unquote. So this then gets us into AI learning. So briefly, just so we're all kind of on the same page, AI learning from data sets or training, right, basically involves the input of data and the AI then making a series of predictions um, about the data. So one example I saw in a Vokwin article by Michael Sum, it, it's actually really good, so please like feel free to check it out, talks about how an AI he's talking about it in terms of pictures because I think it's a little easier for us to conceptualize, but how an AI designed to identify something like dogs may be in a training set shown pictures of cats and dogs, right? The AI will then predict whether the picture that it is being shown is a cat or a dog. And it's prediction is then cross-referenced against like the algorithms in the system to basically determine like whether it is or isn't a cat or dog whether the prediction was right right so the Mm -hmm. ai models are considered to learn because with each iteration of this exercise the ai becomes better and better at identifying which picture is a dog which is basically equivalent to gathering like a series of data points that constitute an understanding of like what a dog looks like as opposed to a cat. Okay. Ultimately, this same type of learning 
is used by AIs for replicating voices, okay? So that's the science of how it's done. But then I was like, okay, so they took this to the FBI, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the FBI was like, oh, this is 100% real. Yeah, and I was yeah like, that was wild. <laughs> okay, so what about the science of like detecting a deep fake voice versus a real voice? So I looked into this a bit, and most of this comes from this really interesting paper um, that was actually presented at um, the 31st uh, U.S. Enix Security Symposium <laughs> in August of 2022. So it's actually really recent. Um, this paper uh, is by uh, the first author. His name is Logan Blue um, from the University of Florida. And simplistically put, the authors were able to use the principles of fluid dynamics. What? Really? Yes. To figure out how the human vocal track is arranged when people talk. So there are some, like, images in there of, like, basically it's kind of, like, more curvy when people talk. And it has to do with fluid dynamics because there's, like, some saliva there and also air and wow. stuff like that. Um, and so from doing this with examples of people talking, they then developed a mathematical and probability based like model. And they were able then to use waveforms of AI generated deep fakes to kind of backtrack with this mathematical and probability based model to figure out how the vocal tract of a person would look if a human were to speak in the same way as a deep fake. Wow. And so what they actually found was that when they do this with an AI generated deep fake, this actually results in a very flat and straight vocal tract that are literally, it's just not possible to get that in humans. Um, so really cool. Uh, the wildest thing I have heard in years. Yeah. So once again, I mentioned at the top that this was uh paper was included in the write-up of a security symposium of August 2022. So the FBI definitely should have like had this information during the timing of Edge of History. Um, and also you just like hope they had their resources in general. Um <laughs> So this is where my National Treasure Lab comes in. Oh my god, Emily, did you deep fake yourself? I did deep fake myself. Um <laughs> I will say that I used a free version of a software that you can pay for. When this was done in Edge of History, I'm sure it was done with much better software. Okay. <laughs> and you'll see a little bit more or you'll hear a little bit more about this in the National Treasure Lab video uh, that I'm going to post. But basically what I did is I made a recording of my voice um, on this program. And I was a little afraid to use my actual voice because I didn't want to like out there. And I'm just realizing that we do a podcast, so it's always out there. We have so almost a hundred episodes worth of you talking. People could deep fake like my voice so well at this point please don't do that if you're listening that's really creepy like please I don't need that stress in my life um and so what I did is I used a, a deeper voice I was kind of basically talking like this um 
when I did my kind of like training set recording. And so I basically used this AI to, with this training set, generate a voice um, that was based on my voice. And then I made it say something different from what I had said. What did you say? Um, well, so the thing that I had to say, which I did find interesting, was like, it was a very weird sentence that I think the idea was that it gets you to say a lot of syllables. Okay. Um, so it's like, even if you only record this one thing, the training, like, it's a, it's enough data right. for something to be pulled from it. Um, I had the AI kind of like deep fake version of my voice say the intro to our podcast. <laughs> it, it didn't really sound like me it didn't sound like deep voice emily it didn't sound like deep voice emily like it was it was pretty clear to me okay. that it wasn't and like was this because i used you know a not awesome software um i will also note that there were like different settings you could do so like you i and i do this in the video i i can go from i went from like confident was like an adjective i could choose for the voice to like enthusiastic I don't think it sounded that different. And then you could like basically move this sliding bar to like increase the realness. You could like add pauses. It was weird. You'll see it in the video. It didn't sound like me. All in all, is this deep faking legit? Like, yes, you can deep fake someone's voice. We knew that going in. That was right. not really the main question here. Um, Is it real in the context of like the FBI in National Treasure Age of History. I mean, yes, if we believe that the FBI, the same FBI that is depicted in National Treasure as somewhat inept is the FBI that's working in Edge of History. <laughs> but I would like to believe that when it comes to the FBI specifically, they would analyze this audio file like really well and be able to figure out that it was like not a real voice. Yeah, it but shouldn't have been... It shouldn't have been up to Ethan to be like, oh, further versus farther. Right. No. Like, they should have been able to tell by the way she said things. All right. So we're giving this one a, a no. Is a that no. No, not legit? No. All right. Well, yes, in that you can do a deep fake, but no in the context. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Emily, for that hard work. Uh, we're going to move right along to our next topic at hand. We're getting closer and closer to our speed rounds, but not yet, guys, because first we have to dive into polygraphs controversial so controversial i was really excited to research this because of that so in episode nine penultimate episode of edge of history best episode of edge of history some might say um we have Oren and liam going to agent ross asking for help trying to convince her that billy is actually the bad guy not jess uh they think they can prove it to ross because Miles's body is like supposed to be dead in Sadesky's study, but of course Billy's team cleaned up the scene because duh. Um, instead, Oren agrees to do a polygraph test to basically prove they're not lying, and he apparently passes. Which makes me question lie detector tests. Honestly, this is making, just even saying this without going into the science yet is making me think that maybe the FBI is just as inept in this show as you suggested they might be. 
Burn. I mean, okay, let's talk about it. What is a polygraph? Polygraph tests, you know, better known colloquially as lie detector tests, are in fact highly controversial, as you said, Emily. But that does not actually stop them from being used by law enforcement to inform investigations, um, not really as like as much in like a court of law setting, but to be like, can we rule this person out or whatever. Um, also, companies apparently use polygraphs to vet job candidates, which is something I did not know, and that blows my entire brain. That's creepy. Yeah. Okay, so the premise here for a polygraph test is that it's the supposition that your body will react physiologically when you are lying. Um, the first polygraph test was created in 1921, um, more than 100 years ago. Their design hasn't changed in 100 years, which is telling you we're off to a good start, right? What is this design that has not changed? It's measuring three physiological responses. Number one is heart rate using a basically a blood pressure cuff. Number two is respiration rate, which is measured with like pneumographs around your chest. So when they strap something around the subject's chest in your favorite CSI episode or whatever. And then there's skin conductivity. And they measure this by putting electrodes on your fingers. Um, the process for a polygraph would be uh, much lengthier than what we saw in Edge of History. Actually, in my brain, we saw a lot of the polygraph test. And then when I went back to the script, we saw none of the polygraph test, which is super weird and makes this scene wholly unnecessary. Um, but despite the fact that the implication is that this was a fairly quick thing, um, how a polygraph test is supposed to work in real life is that they start with a pretest where the subject is basically told all the questions and make sure they understand what the questions are. Um, so that that's supposed to take away some of the variability, like maybe they just didn't understand the question or whatever. Then they're hooked up to the all those devices. They're asked the questions, the responses are measured. Um, and there are multiple strategies that can be used for how to ask the questions. The most common strategy is the control question test or the CQT. The, the pattern here is that the subject is asked to answer both relevant questions and control questions. However, when you see a polygraph test on TV, like in a CSI and CIS or something like that, what is the first question that you always see them ask? What's your name? Yeah, it's like, what's your name? And then they might go with like, what's your birthday? Where do you live? Like things that are supposed to create a baseline. And they imply on TV that those are the control questions. The really important control questions are actually not that at all. What? Yeah, this was interesting to me. The control questions are supposed to be similar to the relevant questions, but about the person's past. So not about the incident that's actually in question. So I'm going to give you an example, M, from the American Physiological Association. If the relevant question is like, did you shoot your wife? Okay. The control question isn't, where do you live? <laughs> the control question here is, have you ever betrayed anyone who trusted you? How 
How would they know the answer? It's not about the answer so much as it is about the pattern of how your body responds to controls versus relevant questions. A presumed innocent person would have more of a physiological response to the control questions than to the relevant questions. So think about it. If you did not shoot your wife, Emily, but you were asked, have you ever betrayed anyone who trusted you? There's a good chance that in your brain, you're like, oh, I'm you know 30 years old. I've probably betrayed someone before. And like your body is going to respond to that as you answer the question. Whereas you didn't shoot your wife. So your body's not, you're not stressed about that question. Oh, so it's like, it's the opposite of kind what of. we think the control is. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Now, of course, if there's not a significant difference between the control and relevant responses for an individual, then the test is going to be inconclusive. Um, there are multiple problems here, however, Emily. The biggest one, I would say, is that there's very little scientific evidence to prove that there's any meaningful, statistically significant connection between physiological response and veracity i.e. whether or not someone's being truthful. Um, after all, as you and I know very well, some people are just anxious. Yeah, my polygraph would be <laughs> And you know, some people are just not anxious also. There's also the fact that various countermeasures have seemed somewhat effective in thwarting a polygraph, such as like, physical movements happening consistently, or again, as in the handwriting analysis, if someone is on drugs, that can also uh, mess things up here. And they tend not to be admissible in a court of law, as, as we said, but they are still used in, in like law enforcement settings sometimes. So Emily, is this legit? Yeah. It, it, like your case, yes, polygraphs exist. Right. And they are used. Sure. Agencies use polygraphs all the time, but I'm pretty sure we all know they can't be trusted. Plus, again, we didn't actually witness the polygraph happen in Edge of History, I don't think, which is super weird and also doesn't allow us to answer whether it was conducted legitimately. So was it legit or not? We really can't assess in Edge of History. Wow. That was a that was a journey. It was, right? Um it was. And at the end of any good journey, do you know what you need to do? You know, the end of a roller coaster, what's usually the last thing you do before you pull in smoothly to the station? I mean, there's at least one more hill. There is. And that hill is usually pretty steep and pretty speedy. Which I think means it is time for the National Treasure Hunt Science version of the Speed Round. That was not a good intro to that, but that's okay, because we're going to keep going with it, because that's what the Speed Round's all about. Aubrey, you have our first Speed Round category. It is Orange Dye 47. What can you tell us about it? This topic is first introduced in Episode 3 and solved in Episode 9. It turns out that Agent Sadusky, when he died, had something orange on his hand. When his body was found, Dr. Zeke ends up determining that it is Orange Dye 47, which he says very confidently is found in Flamin' Hot Cheetos, Tic Tacs, and Airheads. Well, Emily, I'm here to report to you that there is a chemical known as CI Disperse Orange 47, which is a dye with a molecular weight of 620.5 grams per mole. It is typically used to dye plastics and pre-spun fibers, but not food, which is probably why when I did my National Treasure Lab for 
orange dye 47 at my local grocery store, you could not, in fact, find orange dye 47 in Flamin' Hot Cheetos, Tic Tacs, or Airheads. Uh, and even though I just spoiled the National Treasure Lab for you, you should totally go watch that video because it's actually kind of funny. So is this legit or not? No, no, it's not. Not at all. Wonderful. Okay, Aubrey, English you as a poison. Go! In episode four, Agent Ross finds English U in Agent Sadusky's study and suspects that it was used as a poison to kill him. Dr. Zeke once again later confirms this with a toxicology screen. Well, Emily, it turns out that the U of the family Taxaceae is a common ornamental plant that I have totally seen before. Like, it's that plant that, like, is kind of... Uh, kind of spiky and has these sort of translucent red berries on it that are really fun to play with. Turns out those berries or the seeds inside of them are super poisonous. I'll get there in a second. While Western and American yews are endemic to North America, English and Japanese yews are commonly grown here. Almost the whole plant is toxic because it contains taxines. These are alkaloids that are at their highest concentration in the leaves of the yew plants in the winter. According to Mount Sinai Hospital, symptoms of poisoning in humans include confusion, blue lips, unconsciousness, convulsions, gastrointestinal symptoms, dizziness, headache, slow heartbeat, and tremors. Death is uncommon if the ingestion happens accidentally, but if it was intentional, then yeah. Yeah, you die. So is this legit? Yes. Sounded like you were uh, doing a drug commercial there. I know. Yeah. I thought so too. <laughs> All right, Emily, you are up next using a mirror to blind someone. Okay. So this was seen in episode eight when Jess and Raphael must escape the Mexican prison. Raphael tries using a broken shard of mirror to direct the sunlight into the eyes of the guard of the prison, blinding the guard and preventing him from being able to take a clean shot at Raphael and Jess. So what is the science behind this? So Keep in mind, we aren't actually talking about blinding someone here, more just impairing their vision for a time with a bright light. Now, most people have experienced this if they've ever been in a low-sitting car at night with an SUV or a truck behind them, as the light from the headlights of those cars is reflected in your side or rearview mirrors, making it very difficult to see. Oddly enough, there were articles that I saw that talked about how you, like, should not turn your mirrors so that the light reflects back at these people, potentially impairing their vision, because then if you stop quickly, they could hit you. Why somebody would need to be told that, I don't know. Um, anyway, I actually teach about the general phenomenon of looking into a bright light and not being able to see well in my intro to neuroscience class. Basically, there are cells in the retina, which are is the back of your eye, that become overexcited from bright light. And the cells experience something known as photobleaching, where they basically lose the light-sensitive pigments that they contain because these pigments have been broken down by photons of light. So I did a National Treasure Lab. Basically, you'll see it in the video. Um, hey, it's really hard to do this with the sun. The sun is, in case you didn't notice, very large and not a super focused light. So obviously, like <laughs> you can look at the sun... And it can cause this photobleaching effect in your eye. But like reflecting the sun off a mirror is a little difficult. I did this with some like a lamp basically to try and get a more direct flow of light. And uh, though it did create this effect in my own eye, it did not uh, seem to create a strong enough reflective beam of light to potentially do that to someone else. So is the phenomenon legit yes would it have worked this way no all right um you have our next one as well this is using a star app to pinpoint a location okay so this was seen in episode eight as well 
Once out of the prison, Jess and Raphael take apart the three boxes and put the puzzle pieces together. Jess realizes the dots that she sees on them are stars and planets, and then uses a star app that she has on her phone, casually, to figure out what location would feature those stars and planets, determining the answer is the Devil's Swamp. Now, science behind this. There's an app called Star Chart that you can use to point your phone at the sky, and it will then use a built-in compass to locate where you are and tell you what you're looking at based on a catalog of 125,000 stars and 88 constellations. I will say that something that Aubrey and I always questioned in the scene in Edge of History was whether or not the date would impact where the stars were in the sky. The answer is yes, because the Earth moves and is round while we're at it. This star <laughs> chart app does actually have a calendar as well as the ability to move forward and backward in time over the course of 10,000 years. Is this legit? No. Am I still going to do the lab? Yes. Why is it not legit? Because we don't really know the timing of when all of these boxes were created in Edge of History. So Jess would have had no idea where to scroll back to in that calendar to figure out the star pattern. Okay, Aubrey, you're up next. Wayfinders, go. All right. In episode nine... It turns out that Jess's Daughters of the Plume Serpent necklace was a wayfinder the whole time. You can open the necklace with a pin, then the pin will just move around, pointing toward the intended destination. I did once again just now realize, as I was prepping this episode, that we never figured out what in the treasure chamber is quote-unquote connected to the wayfinder, but we will continue to ignore that. The science behind this, this one actually blows my mind. Evidently, wayfinding refers to the ways in which people travel over land, sea, and air using unmarked routes. This includes everything from using maps and compasses to using the positions of stars and planets to GPS. Unless we're considering Jess's necklace a compass, there is no single wayfinder device in the way that Billy makes it seem. And this makes it even more questionable, this realization from earlier that we have no idea what object or property of the treasure room makes the quote-unquote wayfinder compass thing point towards it. Is this legit absolutely not amazing all right emily um i think we're taking it home with you your last speed round is stabbing someone with a punctured lung to relieve the pressure and saving their life yeah so this was seen in episode 10 of edge of history in a trick used across television including the recent final season of the show manifest dr zeke talks tasha and oren through how to save Agent Ross's life. Basically, they need to stab her with a cylinder, straw, in a very specific spot on her chest to relieve pressure from her lungs. So, science behind this. When someone has a punctured lung, air can escape from the lung into the space between it and the wall of the chest, known as the pleural space. This actually puts pressure on the lung, which may cause it to collapse, making breathing difficult. The treatment option for a serious punctured lung does involve either inserting a chest tube or a hollow needle into the pleural space. This allows air to leave that space, allowing the lung to expand again over time. It should be noted that you do need some sort of suction most of the time to pull the air out. A chest tube can be connected to a suction machine, and a hollow needle can be connected to a syringe. So is this legit? I mean, yes, if you're really lucky with your placement and enough air is able to escape without suction being needed, this can happen. What I read online, please don't do this. Please don't do this. The chances of you hitting the wrong area, even if you have Dr. Zeke directing you, are, like, incredibly high. Like, d don't do this. 
please Emily do cannot not. emphasize this enough. No, like just because it's legit doesn't mean that you should do it. I literally was Googling like, what do you do in an emergency situation if you are nowhere near a hospital and someone has a punctured lung and all of the sites were like, regardless, please do not stab the person in the chest. <laughs> like, you're better off doing all of this other stuff because if you stab them in the chest, they're probably going to die. And if you don't, they might live. <laughs> I I cannot think of a better place to end our conversation about, about science today. Um, we've been going, this has been a long episode. Hopefully it's been a fun one. I do want to just brief wrap wrap up or reflections here I don't know if you have any thoughts Emily I um you know I feel like over time in the national treasure verse we have seen the the quality of science tricks employed in national treasure kind of decrease through our properties we loved the science in the first national treasure it was incredible the second one definitely leaned a little bit more on tech and now edge of history here some of these feel like slight stretches to call them science, but we have fun with them nonetheless. That's my impression. Yeah, I my impression is that National Treasure 2 science was dull AF. This science was fun. This brought me back to uh, really? like National Treasure 1 science. It wasn't as like 2004 because things have changed, right? So like we're doing more with technology. Yeah. There was still a lot of science here. And I think most of mine were like factual which i think is why i'm skewing in that direction all right all right i do feel the need to acknowledge that there were some things we omitted from this episode for example i know do not message us we know we did not include the time tasha went to a motel room and used the antenna from a tv to track flight patterns i'm gonna be honest with y'all we just didn't care no. Like we we did not do anything for us, either of us. So we no. omitted it. I literally forgot until Aubrey just mentioned it that it had happened. So <laughs> we there is some element here, you guys, that we need to get some joy out of what we're doing, and that one just would not have have helped either of us. So No, but if you want to look into it and tell us what the science behind it is and if it's legit or not, you can. You can find us on social media at NT Hunt Podcast. You can find us on our website and send us a message there, nthuntpodcast.com. And you can also tell us on our Discord, which you can have access to normally, or in our special Discord channels, which you can have access to if you are a member of our Patreon, patreon.com slash nthuntpodcast. See, Emily is still in speed round mode. Uh, really very much appreciate it. Y'all are going to want to come back for our next episode, which will be a deep dive episode. We haven't done one of those in a while. We are going back to our National Treasure film roots, and we are going to be deep diving into Buckingham Palace, going international next time. But hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. Mm-hmm.